0: Well, Ephesians chapter 1, let's jump in. Ephesians chapter 1, it has been said that the hardest thing a person ever does is to forgive somebody. And if you've ever been hurt by somebody, you know that forgiveness is hard. If somebody has ever offended you, if somebody has ever disrespected or lied about you, then you know that forgiving those people can be a challenge. But what about the Lord? Have you ever wondered, is forgiveness hard for the Lord? When we break our promises to God, when we sin against God, when we rebel, is it hard for God to forgive us? Uh, Well, I want to suggest this morning that it is. Uh, Of course, God doesn't have hurt feelings or insecurities like we have. And It is also true that nothing is impossible for God. Jeremiah 32 17 and many other places tell us that But I think in another sense that forgiveness is hard for the Lord even the Lord And let me tell you why I think that Uh, the Bible teaches us that God created the world God created the universe with just a word He just spoke it and there it was now that is immeasurable power yet the Bible also tells us that God with all of his power and all of his ability cannot will not just shrug off even one single sin Deuteronomy 424 says for the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God God told Adam and Eve when they sinned that they would face an inescapable death even for one sin And today we know that that is the case for us. Romans 6.23 says, for us, the wages of sin is death, and we're all appointed to die. There will be no person who escapes that unless somebody pays the penalty for him for his sin. The Bible teaches us that God will not, and it really teaches us that God cannot, because of his character, because of his own standard, he cannot just ignore sin or arbitrarily dismiss sin without it being paid for. Psalm 7, listen to this. God is a righteous judge and a God who shows his wrath every day. If anyone does not repent he will sharpen his sword he has strung his bow and he has made it ready in a real sense forgiveness is hard for the Lord and if you don't believe that just ask Jesus right ask Jesus in the in the Garden of Gethsemane, ask Jesus on the cross. I thought this morning about Luke twenty-two forty-four. It, it describes Jesus in the garden and it says, being in anguish, this is Christ now, being in anguish, he prayed more fervently and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And he cried out to the Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. You tell me that forgiveness is not hard for the Lord it is hard it was hard and he paid a great price for our forgiveness and we see that reflected here in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 is where we are today let's read that read that verse it says in him in Christ we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness, there it is, the forgiveness of our trespasses or our sins according to the riches of his grace. Now that's a rich verse. There's a lot to learn from that verse, but it focuses on the word redemption. And that's going to be our key word today. I don't, I don't know if I said this last week, but in our uh, long study of the book of Ephesians that we have begun, we're... We're beginning by looking at some vocabulary words for salvation. So in the first three, uh, well, the first dozen verses, I suppose, of of Ephesians chapter one, there are some key words that we must understand to fully appreciate the salvation that is ours. And we're going to look at three of those. Last week, we looked at predestination. Next week, we're going to look at inheritance, But today, we're going to look at the central word to all of that, and that is redemption. That's our vocabulary word for the day, and it's right here in the middle of verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of our sins. Now, what does the word redemption mean? In the first century, the word redemption was almost always used to refer to paying the price that was necessary to free someone who was a slave. Now there are a lot of different reasons in the first century that somebody might be a slave, but, but the most common reason is that they had a debt that they couldn't pay. And they owed $100 or $1,000 or $100,000 in their day. And if you couldn't pay your debt, you would be arrested, you would be sold as a slave, and there would be a price on your head equal to the debt that you owed. And so to ever gain your freedom, somebody would have to pay that price. They would have to pay the debt that you couldn't pay. And really there are three actors in that kind of scenario. I want to make sure you understand. There would be the one who owed the debt. He is the slave. There would be the one to whom the debt was owed. He would be the slave owner, perhaps. Or he would be the one who sold you into slavery. And then there would be the one who would redeem you. The one who would pay the price, the debt that you owed. So the Bible says that we have been redeemed. We have been redeemed. So that tells us some things. First of all, we owe a debt we cannot pay. You, you wouldn't be redeemed if you could pay it yourself. You wouldn't be a slave if you could pay it yourself. So the very fact that there's a slave, that we are slave, we've been redeemed, so we are slaves and we owe a debt we cannot pay. And then the second part, which I just said, we're slaves. We're slaves. So we owe a debt we cannot pay, and we're slaves. And so the Bible says, verse 7, that he has redeemed us. Uh, so that's our word for the day. You'd likely know something about redemption. Uh, this is a word I think way more familiar to us than predestination last week or inheritance next week. We'll, we'll, we'll poke around at that word a little bit and maybe see something surprising But redemption, this is a word that we know well, but I I think there's probably more to learn. There's always more to learn, right? But there are certainly reasons to rejoice. And so even if you are an expert on redemption today, listen to this. Just as I wanted you to celebrate and rejoice when we fully understood predestination last week, uh, my prayer is that we will rejoice when we're reminded of the wonder of redemption today so to begin to explain the term i want to ask some questions to try to till up the soil a little bit uh, so i want to maybe even i can upset you a little bit i mean that's my goal I, I, I want i want to create some big question marks in your mind and then we'll try to answer the questions okay so here are some questions to till the soul, soil of what you think you know about redemption Question number one, why do we really need redemption? Ever thought about that? I mean, if I've got a debt, if I got myself into this situation, why can't I get myself out of this situation? I mean, if, if my poor choices got me into debt, why can't I make some better choices to get me out of debt? Why do I need redemption to start with? And if, if I do need redemption, what is the cost of redemption? who decides how much I have to pay? Now, we see here that we're redeemed by the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. That's a pretty high payment. Who picked that payment? Is it just arbitrary? Why didn't God pick a lower price for redemption? Why didn't God make the, the payment less so that I could pay the payment myself? And if, if the payment can't be lowered and Christ paid the payment... Uh, and he paid it with his blood. Then, who did Christ pay the payment to? To whom was the payment made? Who is the one who is demanding that this payment be made? The Bible says in John eight forty four that we are children of the devil before we're we're children of God. The Bible says in John eight thirty four that that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Well the devil and sin those seem to go together so is it is it the devil that's demanding that Jesus make this payment is Jesus being obedient and submissive to Satan and is he satisfying the demands of 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 the devil when he makes this payment that doesn't seem right and if it is Satan that's paid off then then how could it be how could it be that Satan Is said to be defeated if he received the payment that he demanded I I mean if you if you come and offer to buy my house and I tell you that okay you can buy it for this amount of money and you write a check for that amount of money and you take my house you can't say that you've defeated me no I think I defeated you right because I got the cash So if Jesus just paid Satan what was demanded, then how could it be that the Bible says that Jesus defeated Satan on the cross? How does redemption work? Well, hopefully I've confused you. Uh, So now I can can look to Ephesians chapter one, verse seven and seek to answer the question. Uh, There are four questions I wanna answer. And I think if we answer these biblically, then all the other pieces fall into place. Question number one, why do we need redemption? Now, we're going to go through these uh, maybe obvious questions, but we're going to go through them very, in a very methodical way. Just step, 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 like we're building something because I want there to be no confusion. So why do we need redemption? Look back at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now I want to ask two, two questions that are similar, but a little different. First of all, if I need redemption, then what is the problem between me and God? If, if, if I need God to redeem me, when, what exactly is the problem between me and God? And then why do I need God to rescue me? So what is the problem? Well, first of all, God has a standard. Do you know that? Matthew five forty eight says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God has a standard. It is 100% perfection. It is 100% do the right thing, never the wrong thing, for the right reasons, never the wrong reasons. That's the standard of God. Now, God not only has a standard, but it is a standard that we have violated. All of us have sinned. Romans 3:23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't have to convince you that you're guilty of sin. Another way that we sin though is not just the fact that we have sinned from time to time, but we have sinned in the sense that we are sinners. Did you know that we don't actually We're not actually sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It it is a part of who we are. We were born sinners. And if you have children, you know that, right? You don't have to teach your children to sin. Your child is born a sinner and good at it. And if you don't know that yet, it's just simply because your child has not reached the teenage years. (laughs) The Bible teaches us this so many ways. Uh, Adam and Eve sinned Genesis 5.3 then says that they passed that sin, Adam passed that sin over onto his son. David acknowledged, King David years later acknowledged that this was true. Psalm one five he says, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Uh, Isaiah, the prophet, years after that, echoed the truth. He said, all of us have become like something unclean. All of our righteous acts are like a filthy rag. Uh, Paul emphasized it in Romans 3 and then again in Romans 6. And then he said of himself in chapter 7, verse 24, listen to how Paul described himself. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And then Jesus says it in Matthew 15, 19. uh, We have violated, church, we have thoroughly violated the standard of God. And then it's important to know that sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59.2 says your iniquities are separating you from your God and your sins uh, have hidden your faith, your face from God. We're separated from God. Why, why do our sins separate us from God? Because God is holy and pure and righteous. And so when we sin, we are other than that. And, and, and that drives us away from God. It separates us from God. And you know this to be the case. When you sin, you can feel it right? I can feel that I'm separated from God when I sin. I think about the story of Adam and Eve when they sinned. What was the first thing they did after they sinned? They hid from God. Now, God didn't tell them that when you sin, you'll be separated from me, but they just knew it, right? And we feel it. We know it. Sin separates us from God. So what is the problem between me and God? God has a standard. I violated it and that has separated me from him. So why do I need God to rescue me? Well, simply because our hearts are corrupt, Jeremiah 17, 9. Because we're slaves to sin, John 8:34. Because we cannot rescue ourselves. Because we face the wrath of God, Revelation 6, 17. And because hell is real. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. We need redemption. So then the second question is uh, what is the price then? If we need somebody to pay the price because of our sin, and what is the price they have to pay? Well, look back again, Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. In him, we have redemption through what? Through his blood, through his blood. The price is the blood of Christ. Now the blood stands for the life of Christ. in, in, in those days, and, and still today, but in those days, they saw the life force in the blood. And so the shedding of blood was a picture of somebody die somebody losing their life now we've heard it a million times that the wages of sin is death that what we're due if we sin is death but why why couldn't it be something else why couldn't it be the wages of sin is a thousand dollars why couldn't god have made it the wages of sin is purgatory or why couldn't god have made it the wages of sin is that you have to do some penance Why does it say the wages of sin is death? Why couldn't it have been something else? Well, good question. The reason the wages of sin is death is because when we sin, we are separated from God, who is the source of life. Does that make sense? Life comes from whom? Life comes from God. And so if sin separates us from God, then it separates us from the source of life, the source of joy, the source of peace, the source of everything. And when we're separated from God, the biblical definition of that is is death, is death. So the shedding of blood, Jesus died, he paid the penalty, which was death, that we owed because of our sins. there is a... There's an old hymn that this reminds me of. And some of you will be very, very familiar with this, and it'll be perhaps one of your favorite hymns. Some of you have never heard of this before, but I, I want everybody to at least admit this is a pretty weird hymn, unless you understand it. And so let me walk you through it. The, the hymn is by William Cowper, 18th century English poet. And the name of the hymn, There Is a Fountain. How many of you know that hymn? I'm going to show you the words a little later on. So in this room, a lot of people know it. I bet there were fewer hands in the summit service. Uh, But it's a hymn based on Zechariah 13.1. On that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. It says on this day, and they wouldn't have known exactly then what that day was or what that even referred to, but, but God said, there's coming a day when I am going to open a fountain that'll cleanse you of your sins. And so they celebrated it, even though they didn't fully understand it. Uh, So what was he talking about? Well, let me read to you some verses and I don't want to get into too high weeds here, but I think this is important. Why did they need, in Zechariah's day, in the Old Testament, why did they need some fountain to cleanse them of their sins? Now, you've got to understand that there were fountains in those days, and there were springs in those days. And so you would go to the spring in order to get clean. You couldn't really go to the Uh, To the lake because that's where all the animals were and all the mud was stirred up and you tried to wash yourself in the lake You probably come out dirtier than when you went in But you could go to a fountain and you could cleanse yourself And so he says one day there will be a fountain that won't just cleanse your body of dirt But it'll cleanse your soul of sin and so why was this needed? Well Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament tells us it says since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come And not the reality itself of those things. It can never perfect worshipers by the same sacrifices they continue to offer year by year. So they went through these ceremonies in the Old Testament, but they weren't sufficient to cleanse them of sin. The next verse says, but in the sacrifices there is a reminder of sins, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. He says, what you're doing isn't sufficient, but one day there will be a fountain Now, let me read to you some other things Zechariah said about that fountain. This is interesting. Uh, So chapter three, verse eight says, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. So Zechariah didn't understand everything we understand, but he said, because he heard it from the Lord, I'm going to open this fountain in a single day. There's going to be something that happens one day in a, in a single day. That's going to make all the difference. What do you think he's talking about? Well, chapter 9, verse 9, here's what Zechariah says. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of of a donkey. He says, you've got a king coming who is great and humble. They wouldn't have understood that. And he's coming riding on a donkey. They wouldn't have understood that. You have any ideas? And then Zechariah 12, 10 says, then I will pour out a spirit of grace on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me, this is God speaking, through Zechariah. They will look at me, the one they have pierced. Zechariah, hearing from the Lord, and he's giving us a preview. One day the king will come and he will be pierced. He will be nailed to a, to a cross and he will die. And through him, I will open a fountain that will, that will bring cleansing, cleansing. So now let me read to you the words of the song and I'm going to show them to you on the screen. Here's the way the hymn reads. There is a fountain filled with blood. Now don't think blood turned into a fountain. Think about approaching a fountain because you're dirty. But you're not just physically dirty, you, you, you're sinful. And this fountain is different. It is filled with blood. It is, it is the fountain that has the power of the death of Christ on the cross. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, from the veins of the Lord. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. You get in that fountain. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all their guilty stains. You know, sins leave a stain. You know what a stain is? Something gets messed up and you can't unmess it up, right? You get a little dirt on you, you can wash it off, but you stain your hands, that's hard to get off. Sin stains us, but this fountain, powered by the blood of Jesus, is so wonderful. It even removes the stains of sin, every remnant of sin in our lives. What was the price of redemption? It was the blood of Jesus Christ. Now the next question, who did Jesus then pay for our redemption? So I think this is the critical question raised by verse 7. In him we have redemption. We have this payment For our freedom through his blood that brings forgiveness. But who exactly did Jesus pay? Who who was the ransom? Who who was demanding the ransom? We we know that it was a ransom. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. So he paid a ransom. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You were bought at a price. So to whom was this payment made? Now there are a lot of ways to walk through scripture and get to the answer. There's just one answer by the way, but there's a lot of ways to get to it. Uh, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to take you one way. I wanted to take you a different way. There's just the Bible is so wonderful in how it presents this in just a multifaceted way. But let me tell you what the answer is. And then I'll show you how we how we got there. The answer is not Satan. Now That's the first thing people think of because, um, uh, who would demand such a payment? And we're children of the devil. We're slaves to sin. So we think, I think, I think this is the first thought that comes to most people's minds is that the payment was, must have been made to Satan. But, he, but that's not true. The right answer, who did Jesus pay for our redemption? Is God, the Father. The Father is the one who demanded this payment. Now, let me show this to you in, in Scripture, and I, and I think the path I'm going to take is, is, is through two verses, Romans 5, 9, Romans three twenty six. So we'll start with Romans 5, 9. Just listen. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, made right with God by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? The Bible says that there's wrath that God has this holy wrath against us. That's why lost people are sent to hell. That's why we're hopeless once we die without Jesus Christ, because there's this wrath of God that is real, that is holy and righteous, and the wrath of God will be satisfied, either because you pay the ultimate price in hell, or some other way. And so we're being saved from the wrath of God. We're not being saved ultimately from the clutches of Satan. Satan does not send anybody to hell. Satan is not the one demanding that every sin be paid for. Satan is not the ultimate judge. We're being saved from the wrath of God. So the payment is to God. God is the one who is owed. And Jesus is satisfying God. Now, that may unsettle you, but let's look at the next verse. Romans 3, 26, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness. This is a hard verse to understand. You have to focus. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Christ. So it says that God is showing us his righteousness, demonstrating his righteousness by being both just and the justifier. What does that mean? Well, God is just first. That's where it begins. It says God is just. That means that God will not relent from punishing any sin. If a judge is just, if there's a judge here in Nacogdoches and he's doing his job, she's doing her job, then that judge is going to uphold the law perfectly. Not going to make exceptions, not going to show people favoritism, not going to, not going to let Uh, His or her relatives off, you know, know, that judge is going to uphold the law perfectly. And the Bible says that God is the perfect judge. His justice, He will not overlook even one sin. He is the perfect judge, and His justice is perfect. So He is just. But here's the wonderful part you listening? He is not only just, He is the justifier. So he demands that sin be paid, and then he pays it. Isn't that amazing? He is just, he is just, he demands it, no exceptions, but then he pays it. He is just and the justifier. How does he pay it? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, you see that if you read all of uh, Romans three twenty five through 26, I, I'm running out of time, I am out of time, but, but, but here, I won't read it, but here's what you see. It talks about the mercy of God. And so in the mercy of God, you see that God overlooked sin for a while. In the justice of God, you see that God says eventually somebody's got to pay. But then in the grace of God, he chose to pay himself. God demanded payment and then God made the payment he demanded and that's the grace of god now one last question and i'm going to go through this quickly but how did then christ's death and resurrection equal satan's defeat so the bible says that satan was defeated how how could he be defeated by the death and the resurrection of jesus christ well this takes us to a theological debate that you might not have heard of before uh, we talked last week about predestination. Of course, there are debates around that. Next week, we're going to talk about inheritance and security. There are debates around that. But you probably don't know of the redemption debates, the atonement debates. Uh, but let me, let me tell you just briefly. Uh, there are two reasons, possible reasons, biblical reasons, why Jesus died on the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he do it? Why did he die? So there are two biblical reasons. Somebody might say that he died to defeat Satan. And the the word for this, uh, the phrase for this is Christus Victor, if you just want a a fancy theological word. And we see this uh, over and over in scripture, but let me read it to you in Hebrews chapter two. It says, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, uh, Jesus also shared in these, so Jesus became flesh and blood, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So the Bible says that Jesus died to defeat Satan, says it clearly. But there's a second possibility. You could say that Jesus died as our substitute on the cross. Jesus died in my place. I deserve to die. Jesus died for me. And you see that in the Bible that's called by the way, if you want the fancy religious word penal substitution That's a weird word phrase But that's it and I think of verses like second Corinthians 521 that says God made him who had no sin That's Jesus to be sin for us So that I might become the righteousness of God Jesus was my substitute So which is it did Jesus die to be my substitute or did Jesus die to have victory over Satan? well in the first thousand years of the church people leaned more toward the defeat of satan as primary substitute as secondary the last thousand years of the church They've reversed it around uh, in my notes I've got a lot of information about that that you are probably not too curious about but 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 what's the answer? Well, here's the answer and, and you'll see why this is important Jesus defeated satan by being the substitute for us on the cross. So both are true. Jesus did defeat Satan, but how did he do it? By being our substitute. Now let me show you how exactly that worked. How exactly did Jesus defeat Satan on the cross? One, two, three, I'm gonna go fast. Number one, when Jesus died on the cross, he won the prize. What was the prize? What was God after? All this incarnation of Jesus born in Bethlehem, Jesus living a sinless life, dying on the cross. What was all this after? All the work of Satan that we see in the Bible. What was the prize? We were the prize. And God won us when Jesus died on the cross. So in that sense, he's victorious. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him might come to know him as might spend eternity in heaven. Uh, God won us. The second way that He defeated Satan is He re, He removed Satan's ability to accuse. Uh, the word Satan in in the original is is really the word for accuse. He's the accuser. We see that in Revelation twelve ten. Uh, Satan, his main task is to accuse uh, sinners, and he accuses us, and he accuses us to the to the Lord. Uh, I've told this story before it's not a biblical story, but it's an encouraging story for me I imagine that one day And I don't like I said not a biblical story but I imagine when I think about the end I could imagine me in a large dark room? Walking out before God the Father on the throne My Heart beating my mouth dry scared to death and then over on my left is the accuser and he opens some big book and he begins to read of the sins of Noel Deer. and he reads one and then another and then another and i was intimidated before but every time he reads another sin and i know that it is the truth I am just cowering before the Holy God, and another, and another. And then he turns the page, and he reads another, and another. And just before I've had about as much as I can possibly stand and handle, out of the shadows walks Jesus. And he walks up and he stands right next to me And he puts his arm around me. And he holds his hand out to the accuser, Paul's. And he looks to the father and he says, Father, I've already paid for all of that. This is my brother, this is your son. And God accepts me, not because of me, but because of Jesus how did Jesus defeat Satan he's taking he's taken away his his weapon of accusing Satan can accuse me of nothing not because there's nothing for me to be accused of but because Jesus has paid the price and then finally Jesus destroyed Satan's power over death Hebrews 2.14, to destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. So Satan is defeated and death is destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15.55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The, The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We had a church member die just this week. And I was, I was in this, uh, this man's home as he was lying there and very close to death. And his wife and his family uh, were standing there. And, 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 and we thought it could just happen at any moment there. And, and then and a day or two or three or four later, it did happen. But, but while people were sad, there was rejoicing. Death was not victorious in that room. That man went to Jesus. He's trusted Jesus. He's with Jesus. Death has been defeated. That's how Satan was defeated by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, way over on time. Let me give you one verse and then we'll close. What should we do with all that? First Corinthians 620. Listen, you were bought at a price. You see the verse on the screen? You were bought at a price. So do what? Glorify God with your body. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Two decisions you can make today. One is you can respond to the, for the very first time to the gospel of Jesus. You can trust what Jesus has done for you. You can know that when you stand before God and the accuser opens the book, that Jesus will stand with you and say, there's not one thing in that book I've not paid for. If you'll trust Jesus and make him the Lord of your life, that's decision number one. Decision number two, those of us who are children of God, we should glorify God now. With our bodies, with our service, with our worship, with our holy living, let us, because we understand how hard forgiveness was for God, let us honor him as we celebrate the forgiveness that is ours. Father in heaven, thank you for what Christ has done for us. And may we now honor you in all the right ways because of that. And we pray this in Jesus' name.